Hello, hello everyone. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to TN Gemstones, your podcast home for history, science, and social commentary about anything and everything to do with jewelry, gemstones, and precious metals. I am your host, Jen, your personal jewelry historian, here to take you on duly educational and entertaining auditory explorations of such topics as the history of teeth in jewelry, the contents of Queen Victoria's jewelry box, and deep dives into the concept of luck and protection jewelry. I believe in sharing all the little details because I believe that is where a lot of the joy is. I'm also not a fan of long, drawn-out introductions, so now that you've met me and know what the show is about, let's get started. As we begin a brand new year, we are one month into 2023, I thought it would be the perfect time as all 12 calendar months stretch out before us to talk about a group of gemstones, which I think most people are at least passingly familiar. And that's my roundabout way of introducing today's topic, birthstones. The notion of assigning a gemstone or multiple gemstones to represent a specific calendar month is a concept both ancient and modern, with shifting definitions through time. But as a historian, I believe the only way to properly start examining a topic is to start at the beginning. So let's visit approximately the year 1250 BC. This is a time when a very epic Well, I don't think we can call it a necklace. It's a full chest piece. The breastplate of Aaron appears in history. According to the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, God instructed Moses to make a breastplate for Moses' brother Aaron. The breastplate was to contain 12 gemstones for the triple representation of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 months of the year, and the 12 zodiac signs. Now, the Bible exists in many translations, and the ancient peoples didn't always call their gemstones by modern times correct names. Like the word alabaster was used to name every kind of white stone. And we know they blanketly applied the term chrysolite to apply to a green gem group that we now know to be individually peridot, topaz, tourmaline, and apatite. So we know there were most definitely 12 gems in the breastplate, but how does the deduction of just what exactly are the 12 gems, how does that shake out? So let's start at the source, the actual biblical text. The Old Testament is full of very specific instructions from how to construct a tent to cleansing rituals. Even if we in present day don't fully understand the Old Testament details, the details are there. The breastplate gemstone details are laid out in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, verses 15 through 21. 
There are additional verses about the gold chains and the gold rings for the plate, but we're here to focus on these 12 original birthstones. Here's what Exodus lays out. Remember, it's God giving the crafting instructions to Moses. And there's a word in the verses called an ephod. An ephod is a sleeveless shirt worn by Jewish priests. Okay, the verses in the New King James Version translation says, quote, You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardis, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row shall be a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings, and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes." End quote. Quite the thing, yeah? Some of those gems you probably recognize, like diamond or emerald. But what's sardius? Let's break this down. Going in order from the verses, yeah? Let's approach sardius first. Historians have a couple of theories. Sardius could be a reference to a gemstone called sard, which is a darker red relative to carnelian. It could also just be a red stone with red jasper or ruby offered as a possibility. Um, The other more obscure gem in the list is in the third row, a jacinth. Jacinth is sometimes called hyacinth. It's a yellow, red, brown version of zircon. So this is 12 stones etched with the names of their respective tribe. Now, this ancient list of tribal gemstone assignments displayed in an epic priestly breastplate doesn't bear much correlation to our modern-day birthstone designations. It is, however, still worth discussing because the breastplate is one of history's very first introductions to the concept of a particular gemstone representing a specific group. A group a person is in because of their birth. Following through the centuries, we see people really liking this idea of a personally representative gemstone. A man named St. Jerome, born around 342 AD and famous for translating the Bible into Latin, He drafted up an idea for the 12 breastplate stones to represent each of Jesus' 12 apostles. Not that much of a stretch. The Bible already got him most of the way there, told them to put their names on the stones. 
But St. Jerome came up with this idea that Christian believers should collect all 12 stones and wear one stone a month. Did St. Jerome have an insider trader business with the gemstone dealers? Collect them all. But his concept caught on. People did indeed build up their, their apostle stone collections. And this inched the representative gemstone concept closer to our modern month system. Leaping a bit forward from St. Jerome's time frame, as we go into the 8th and 9th centuries, the European countries of Poland and what's now Germany actually made formal religious treaties about the Apostle Stone assignments, calling them foundation stones. People started being fond of wearing the foundation stone from their own birth month, personally identifying with their gem and apostle. The Gemological Institute of America points quite specifically to Germany in the 1560s as the time when people are bonding to their month gem. Though I couldn't find any primary sources to corroborate that information. Who am I to question the GIA? But also, show me the data. If what you are saying is true, I just want to share in the facts. So if anyone knows what those primary sources are for this piece of information, please let me know. From this time frame of the mid-1500s and onwards, a set of 12 Gregorian birthstone poems began appearing in pamphlets, newspapers, etc. Gregorian is a term to define the calendar of 12 months introduced in October 15. 82 by Pope Gregory XIII to replace the Julian calendar, which Roman Emperor Julius Caesar had put into place in the year 46 BC. The Julian calendar actually miscalculated the length of the solar year by 11 minutes, so 1,627 years later, the calendar was all out of sync with the seasons. The Gregorian calendar fixed it all up proper, and the Gregorian calendar is the one the Western world uses in present day. But back to the birthstone poems. The birthstone poems, one for each month, have no confirmed author. They were like folk tales or nursery rhymes until, well, they got commercialized. In 1870, Tiffany & Co. published a pamphlet containing all 12 poems. Find your month, enjoy your poem, and buy your gemstone. Tiffany sells it, of course. Here's some of the poems. They go like, The glowing ruby shall adorn those who in July are born. Then they'll be exempt and free from life's doubts and anxiety. Or how about this one? If cold December gave you birth, the month of snow and ice and mirth. Place on your hand a turquoise blue. Success will bless whatever you do. That's catchy, right? I've actually taken all 12 poems and transferred them into graphic designs. And over on the Tea and Gemstones podcast Instagram, on the first of every month, I will be posting um, these old school birthstone poems there. So that's a fun thing to look for on the first of every month. But these poems, it makes people feel good to have something 
assigned to them. It's clever business for a jewelry company to market birthstones because, I mean, everyone has a birthday, a birth month. And one thing about the jewelry industry, they always love a trend. Jumping on the bandwagon is a favorite exercise. But it was kind of a wild, wild west situation. Not every jewelry store was on board with following the monthly gemstone assignments from a set of old anonymous poems. What if your jewelry store had a bunch of stones in stock that were not on the poem list? Can you just fib and tell your customers, oh, sure, this is your birthstone, and hustle to make that sale? Who could contest you? There was no official formal list. But the lack of formal definition towards birthstones was starting to get messy, It didn't reflect well on the industry for this whole concept of birthstones to be so wishy-washy. Now, who makes the rules and designations for such a broad-reaching and multifaceted, pardon the pun, industry? Well, there is a trade association called the Jewelers of America. They're legit old school. They were founded in 1906, and their official purpose is declared to be, quote, to advance the professionalism and ethics of the jewelry industry. They even have the website address that is simply jewelers.org. But obviously the organization didn't have a website back at the turn of the 20th century. And actually they had a different name, calling themselves the American National Association of Jewelers. But whatever they're called, this trade association took it upon themselves to standardize the birthstone assignments. They met in Kansas, of all the possible glamorous locales. I guess maybe Kansas is in between, like, East Coast, West Coast. They met in Kansas in 1912 to make the official list. As for the logic and reasoning behind the chosen assignments, it's not very clear. I was reviewing an article written by the International Gym Society, and the IGS stated the results of the Kansas meeting were from, quote, combining various customs that had evolved over time while ensuring the stone they chose would be practical for American jewelers to sell and promote in large quantities, end quote. That's the economic kicker right there. Like, Sure, they turned a mild amount of attention to historical accuracy, but hey, at the end of the day, this is a business. Birthstones have to be viable to be sold all across the country to people with vast jewelry budgets and people with less to spare, but still want representative sparkle. The 1912 list was decided as the following. January is garnet, February is amethyst, March got two, aquamarine, and bloodstone. April received diamond, May is emerald. June got two stones, the ethereal pair of pearl and moonstone. July received ruby, August got sardonyx and peridot. Rounding into the fall, September locks in sapphire, aquamarine gets opal and tourmaline, 
November has topaz, and December closes out the list with the double blue assignment of turquoise and lapis lazuli. And like I stated before, this birthstone list wasn't assembled by historians, people seeking out documentation for documentation's sake, as historians tend to do. This birthstone list was designed to sell gemstones to consumers to provide an automatic instant connection of every potential customer to a stone. And how do you facilitate more sales? Provide even more choices. I can see how choice selection could be tenuous for some, like August lime green peridot can be derisive, sardonyx has low name recognition, and December's choices are both blue. In 1952, June got alexandrite added, giving the summer month three stone choices. Warm orangey red citrine was added to November, and December had some reshuffling. Poor Lapis Lazuli got the boot out the door altogether, and Zircon was given to December as a replacement. Over the decades, there wouldn't be any more gemstones taken away. Poor Lapis Lazuli. That's so unfair, isn't it? And the birthstone official list, it's interesting. From what I could tell in my research, the list isn't like owned and trademarked by anyone. My own obscure mental reference point to this idea is from the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie when the good guys are trying to make Captain Barbosa the bad pirate. They're trying to make him follow the rules, follow the pirate code, and Barbosa gets fed up and declares the codes are more like guidelines. AKA flexible and you don't have to follow them. That's how I feel about these attempts to formalize the birthstone assignments. They're like a Google Doc group project and everyone has admin editing privileges. Different organizations just add on their determinations. The American Gym Trade Association in 2002 declared that now Tanzanite was part of December. We made it so. And in 2016, the American Gym Trade Association, this time working administratively hand-in-hand with our friends, the Jewelers of America, they assigned Spinel to the month of August. The theory was, since Spinel is a gemstone that can be any color of the rainbow, it would spur new birthstone purchases from people with August birthdays who previously hadn't been enticed to purchase like a peridot, a gemstone only available in its signature lime green. When talking about these modern birthstone lists, I guess it is easy to slide towards cynical to see the gemstone selections as something a bunch of corporate salesmen drafted up as a foolproof way to generate people's connection to a product. But my philosophy towards constructs like the birthstone list, your astrological sign, your birth order, heck, personality quizzes on BuzzFeed or the pages of Cosmopolitan, the ability of these things to define and craft your sense of self comes from how much power you give them. A strong and confident sense of self, self self-definition, and self-awareness is a good thing. 
In 2018, Harvard Business Review published the results of a research study spanning four years and involving nearly 5,000 participants. Organizational psychologist Tasha, Tasha Urich, PhD, who led the research team, titled the Harvard Business article, What Self-Awareness Really Is and How to Cultivate It. This being a business review, it had the point of view slant towards how self-awareness can facilitate better employees and workplace leadership, but the psychological analysis of how important and beneficial it is for a person to have a strong self-definition gives credibility and value to personally defining extras, like birthstones. The awareness of who we are, what we like, dislike, are we a dog or a cat person? Do we like to cook, ride bikes, watch scary movies, our zodiac, and our birthstone? When we know these answers about ourselves, it gives us a clear self-definition. And the research study says, quote, Internal self-awareness is associated with higher job and relationship satisfaction personal and social control and happiness, end quote. So who cares about the mishmash of birthstone origins from the historical to the commercialized? If knowing your birthstone makes you happy, brings you joy, then embrace it. And if there's a gemstone not officially assigned to your birth month, but you adore it, wear it. And if it helps you confidently embrace who you are, I applaud you. And I got to repeat one of my favorite mantras. There is nothing wrong with liking what you like. That's all for this episode of Tea and Gemstones. I'm super curious about your thoughts on birthstone jewelry and how you believe it may or may not play a part in beneficial self-definition. Find the show on Instagram or Facebook and leave me a comment under the grid post for this episode. And if a new episode every other Tuesday isn't enough for you, have no fear, the Tea and Gemstones Patreon is here. There's a link in the show notes for this episode as well as on the social media pages to get to Patreon. There is an entire exclusive library of episodes there found nowhere else. We're talking about topics like the rising trend of turning cremated loved ones into memorial diamonds. And I also did a big deep dive into the history and science of emeralds. There's also opportunities to get tea and gemstone stickers and other merchandise like t-shirts and tote bags. So if you'd like to support me and the show, please check out Patreon. Thanks to everyone leaving ratings and reviews, especially on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That direct feedback makes the show discoverable in the algorithm so new listeners can find us. Tea and Gemstones is written, hosted, and produced by me, Jen. Our theme song is by Joseph McDade with additional music work by Audionautics. Okay, everyone. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until next time, stay sparkly.